Hey there, welcome back. And uh, there's some great headlines today. It's hard to get through it because it's so good I have to stop and make clips and stuff. So, oops. Jimmy Raskin. Total madness. Trump dangerous plan gets full support from GOP one hour ago. DC soup. I am your host, Brian Karen, mm -hmm. White House correspondent. And today I'm talking a little bit about this Trump dangerous Trump's plan gets full indictment. support from Look, GOP. We got four now, 91 felony counts against one hour him. Ago, We're hoping he'll get the century mark before the end of summer. And boy, won't that be spectacular. Yes, you're exactly right. Donald Trump, all you Trump fans out there, has always said he would make history. It's like he has. He's the most indicted president in history. See how that takes them going into the new year and the new campaign year. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the threats. That's right. We've heard from Donald Trump that they're going to threaten civil war if he's taken a, any further in this mess. Now, of course, this will probably get him put in prison or jail prior to his, uh, or at least they'll be contained <clears throat> prior to his trial because looks like in Washington, D.C. and in Georgia, they're simply not going to put up with Donald Trump continuing to badmouth the Department of Justice. There are limits to what he could say, and he doesn't seem to think so. And he's going to try and poison the well and make sure that uh, he gets as many favorable people on his jury as possible, which means poisoning the well for juries and then threatening prosecutors and judges. And all of them have to have continued safety and, and guards right now because of Donald Trump. But the biggest threat, of course, is that there will be a civil war. Look, we're already in one. We've been in one since 1861. The South never conceded. And they've done marvelous things since the end of the Civil War to try and continue their racist, misogynistic policies. The latest, of course, Texas. They've taken it upon themselves to enforce international boundaries that it is, by the rule of law, job the federal government to do by placing buoys with razor wire and saws and killing and hacking up people. Yeah, that's Texas for you. Oh, not satisfied there? Let's go to Alabama. So the Supreme Court ruled, this is a conservative Supreme Court, mind you, ruled that Alabama must redraw its, its uh, precincts, voting precincts, to give African Americans an additional voting precinct. They didn't do it, and they won't do it, right? States' rights. And in Florida, well, that idiot, Governor DeSantis, who's also running for president and has all the charisma of day-old roadkill, has rewritten history books that are going to be taught in the curriculum in Florida, make that it seem as if slavery was just stuff. trade school. Uh -huh. No, there were benefits. Slavery with benefits. That's, that's <laughs> the lesson in Florida. Now, all of this goes against and flies in the face of actual facts, of course, the law, but that is part and parcel of what the South has been about. These are all former members of the Confederacy. This is where the Civil War is going to be waged. It's going to be waged in courtrooms. It's going to be waged in state legislators, in legislatures. It's going to be fought for the time being in federal, House and Senate, and in the Supreme Court, and in the Executive Office. And the federal government, if it wants to maintain the fact that this is the United States of America, can't afford to lose one of these cases or it severely weakens the federal government. 
they don't care in the South. This is about them. This is about their policy of racism and misogyny and helping the rich get richer while the poor get poorer. The odd part about that is that the poor have far more in common with each other. The rich don't care. They just want to keep you fighting over the stuff that you fight over while they keep taking the money. That's what it's all about. Folks, it's not going to get any better, but I'm here to tell you this. The Civil War, like, was fought in 1860. Not going to happen. We're already a violent country. Yes, there will be sporadic outbreaks of violence. There are on a, any given day. There are, on average, two mass shootings in the United States every day. Now, some of them will, in the future, will be traced back to this divisive behavior of which Donald Trump is merely a symptom. He's not the cause. Education we need. I, if we get people more educated, we won't have this problem. At the end of the day, bottom line is, the South will not rise again. Donald Trump is guilty. The Earth is round. The Holocaust did happen. Vaccines work. Chemtrails aren't a thing. And grow up. I'm not convinced that a majority of Americans are even sentient at this point. Peace, love, and catch you on the flip side. Where? Where? Oh, by the way, want to catch me? <laughs> it's Americans in addition to voting precinct. They didn't do it, and they won't do it. Right? States' rights. And in Florida, well, that idiot. The right Governor to DeSantis, discriminate. Who's also running for president, has all the, the charisma of day-old roadkill, has rewritten history books. They're going to be taught a curriculum in Florida. Make it seem as if slavery was just trade school. Now, there were benefits. Slavery with benefits. That's, <laughs> that's the lesson in Florida. Now, all of this goes against and flies in the face of actual facts, and of course, the law. But that is part and parcel what the South has been about. These are all former members of the Confederacy. This is where the Civil War is going to be waged. It's going to be waged in corporates. It's going to be waged in state legislators, in legislatures. It's going to be fought for the time being in federal, House and Senate, and in the Supreme Court, and in the Executive Office. And the federal government, if it wants to maintain the fact that this is the United States of America, can't afford to lose one of these cases or it severely weakens the federal government. They don't care in the South. This is about them. This is about their policy of racism and misogyny and helping the rich get richer while the poor get poorer. The odd part about that is that the poor have far more in common with each other. The rich don't care. They just want to keep you fighting over the stuff that you fight over while they keep taking the money. That's what it's all about. Folks, it's not going to get any better, but I'm here to tell you this. The Civil War, like, was fought in 1860. Not going to happen. We're already a violent country. Yes, there will be sporadic outbreaks of violence. There are on a, any given day. There are, on average, two mass shootings in the United States every day. Two to three. Now, some of them will, in the future, will be traced back to this divisive behavior of which Donald Trump is merely a symptom. He's not the cause. Education we need. He I, is, and he's not. If we get people more educated, we won't have this problem. At the end of the day, bottom line is, the South will not rise again. Donald Trump is guilty. The Earth is round. Holocaust did happen, vaccines work, chemtrails aren't a thing, and grow up. Huh. Not convinced that a majority Actually, of Americans are even sentient at this point. Peace, love, and catch you on the flip side.
slavery with benefits. Exclamation point. All kinds of things. Dumb us down. By the way, you want to catch me? <laughs> Free the prep. It's wherever fine books are sold. The name of the podcast is Just Ask the Question. And of course, you can always catch me right here. Oops. See you next time. Hey, Midas, Midas. I should Bubba's do, uh, I should do a whole podcast of, a, of his podcast. <clears throat> uh, Total Man, uh, she quit and spoke out against Trump. Former top Trump Intel official speaks out against Trump in exclusive interview three hours ago. <laughs> I like the coffee dog. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a smart thing to do. Dark Brandon. We've got an extraordinary guest on Against All Enemies today. Sue Gordon was one of the top intelligence officials under former President Trump and briefed him regularly, and she faithfully served five of the last six presidents. But she resigned from her position in the Trump administration, citing patriotism as one of her reasons for leaving. She's now speaking out against the former president, helping to highlight the risks he poses to our national security, especially Right? And that's what the extremism 
just run the running the risk of doing. Sue Gordon, welcome to Against All Enemies. In our last uh, phone call, you said something to me that, that really stuck with me as we were talking about domestic violent extremism, which, by the way, multiple administrations, Republican and Democrat, have called the greatest terror threat to the United States today. You said that we need to apply the discipline of intelligence to domestic violent extremism. It can't just be law enforcement. What do you mean by that? Um, so intelligence is a, a craft that allows you to deal with m massive amounts of information, n not in a deductive sense, but in an inductive sense. What, do I, what does this mean? Right? I'm not trying to prove something. I'm not trying to prove a theory. I'm trying to look at information and trying to understand what it is I'm seeing. And then once I understand it, we have a lot of other means uh, to prosecute it or to act on it. Um, if we try and arrest our way out of this, one of two things will happen besides losing. We will also run the risk of taking fragmentary information and over coming up with a theory and then prosecute that. And I think I think this is one where you just have to understand what's really going on, look at the data, try and draw some connections, try to understand the underlying uh, networks and causations, put that together in an assessment that will have some uncertainty but then you decide how you're going to act against it. And some of that will be law enforcement, and some of that will be other kinds of actions to go against it. The challenge is that discipline resides in an intelligence community that has very specific authorities that are designed to go, before, go against not the American people, but against uh, foreign actors. And so you can't just give this responsibility to the intelligence community. It's like you have to take the discipline of intelligence and apply it to something new that is combined with some of the disciplines of law enforcement into something that allows us to see more clearly what it is we're dealing with to develop a whole range of responses against it. Reading between the lines, I think it's safe to say that you don't think DHS is doing that now. Do you think constitutionally, I don't mean in the legal sense, I mean the way that department thinks, the way it's set up, the way it operates, is it even able to do that? Yeah, I think I, uh, no aspersions on DHS intended, but I don't think right now any of the institutions we have are particularly well set up to both acquire the information we need in a responsible fa fashion, assess the information we need in a responsible fa that we've acquired in a responsible fashion, and then develop the responses that are not were not designed for designed for a different purpose. And I think the reason why you almost need something new uh, is in part because of just how fraught this is politically, how much it intersects free speech, how many kind of swings and misses 
that we've had in terms of doing something on it. And we certainly learned this lesson uh, fighting the counterterrorism battle overseas. There were so many things when we first started that, that you could actually increase the disenfranchisement of the people that you were trying to, to respond to. So, you know, I cannot believe I said the words you need something new because generally I am an anti-building of the government agency. But what this will take intellectually to do it in a responsible, constitutional, non-escalation of government authority way, I think needs to be thought in me rather than taking any of the things that exist for a different purpose and trying to force fit them into it because their cultural biases will be overrepresented. I'd create something new and I can't believe I'm saying that because I never want to ever do government I'm surprised to hear you say it as well because DHS, DHS itself came out of that same kind of reaction post 9-11, this idea that we need something new to meet this new emerging threat. You were at the White House the yeah. day after 9-11. You lived through that. What are some of the top lessons? Just give me two or three of the, the top lessons from successes and failures in the, the counterterrorism effort that we can apply to counter domestic violent extremism. Yeah, so one is over-extrapolation of intent from small pieces of data, right? Just, just so this, to, to counter this, you're going to have to have a lot of data because seeing its mechanism and its life and its breadth and pattern is really, really hard. Um, and then I, I think the second thing is, you, you say DHS was kind of the same response I I proposed, no, 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 I think VHS was slamming a bunch of stuff together and saying, okay, now you're new and go do this as, as well. So I think, I think this is probably one that has to start um, maybe as a task force, maybe as a center, so you don't have to do all the big organizational traffic. But we've, we need a group of people to really work to say, how am I going to understand that there are some people that, that have fought this war externally that can be helpful, but it requires new thought because it's our, it's our citizens. New arrivals prepared for this fall. Strike graphic shirt on sale. Only $14.62 for one. Trendy design with good fabric. Extended sizes are from extra large to four extra large. Multiple colors for you to choose. Best gifts for your friends and families. Shop and enjoy on Tima now. At Fry's, you can save big today with sales and promotions on your favorite items. And you'll find it all in the Fry's app. So download the app and start saving more today. Fry's, fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, if you've been watching this show, you've already heard me mention our sponsor, Story Hats. Oh, Thanks shit. to all of you who've already bought Ooh, one. And ads. You know they are top quality hats made Jeff in fair trade facilities with sustainable materials. YouTube ads. Talk about the craft and disproof for most of American history is being challenged right now. Can you provide any insight into the, the weird antipathy? <laughs> 
of former President Trump in particular, but that movement writ large towards the IC, towards the intelligence community to which you dedicated such a large part of your life? Um, yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> no. Um, no, I think this is this actually was going on before former President Trump, and um, you know you could take Edward Snowden as a, as as a, a, a little further out starting point where intelligence itself had been so kept secret that when it escaped into the private sector, we didn't know how to talk about the craft and discipline of what we did that is governed by laws, that it was other people putting their agendas or their understanding or their spin on it, and that's what became the dominant conversation about it. And then if you put it into recent times and you you hear the constant drumbeat of an FBI that is malfeasant or something like that, that I think that plays into the American people. So one of the things you're going to have to do, and I know this is anathema for my community, is just you're, you're going to have to engage the American people. You're going to have to be more transparent about what you do. That's, I really would say that if, if the average citizen met the average intelligence officer, they'd say, oh my God, they're just like me. They have my same hopes and dreams. But the, I'm not going to become the hero of the story by explaining I'm not the villain, I'm just going to have to become the hero by behaving differently. And I think one of those is just going to have to be more transparency, especially when it comes to the things that we do with our own citizens. And I really think that we'll have to be very thoughtful about not escalating government privilege in order to achieve this outcome. We did that post 9-11 and that didn't work out as positively as hoped. So, the, the thing that's so crushing difficult about this problem of domestic extremism is that we can't become different from who we are in order to counter this threat um, that threatens to challenge us. And that's just, you know, how do you not become um, a police state at the time that you're trying to keep everyone safe? within a system that seems to be eroding a bit. And that's why, I think that's why I go with new. I choose a handful of people. There are times that we've done this before. Um, you know, in a weird way, the cyber solarium that just happened was an attempt to take a new look at a vexing problem in a cross-cutting way. And, and while maybe it's not changing the world, I think it did deal with some good things. I don't want to use the Manhattan Project, but I think we have at points in our history decided that this is so important that we'll throw our lots in together and do something different. But to me, the biggest point is don't forget who we are as we prosecute this threat, because it'd be so tempting to do so. That's a keen insight, because so much of the, the the rendering of our social fabric now is over that definition of who we are. And in the context of domestic violent extremism, I'm, I'm drawn especially to, to leaders on the right who are excusing it and folding extremists into the American definition of who we are. And I'll just pick one case in point, Tommy Tuberville, one of the 100 most powerful men in Washington, when asked about white nationalists in the military said, I don't see white nationalists, I see fellow Americans. I don't know how to 
address that when one of the greatest threats we face as a nation, as articulated by our intelligence communities under under Trump, under Obama, now under Biden, are these same people, and they're being defended as just as American as the rest of us. Yeah, I was, I was quoted, I think I was kind of misquoted, but, but I will tell you on my last day with, with former President Trump, and he said, what do you think the greatest threat to America is? And I said that we have stopped believing in ourselves. Right? And that's what the extremism is running, running the risk of doing. You know, kind of a, a bloodless coup <laughs> in a weird sort of way of just making everyone believe uh, that the government is fundamentally bad and that there is one set of people who have the right view. And I, it, it must be addressed, but it is hard to do so while still holding on to the Constitution that has served us pretty well. And to your point of, of you know, the people you and I know who we have, we have respected for a lot of years, they, they are saying some things that, just, that are not helpful on this front. And so I think this is a conversation we need to be having, not to try and overprotect small groups while we are giving away what we've built over so many years. Last question, because I have to ask, you wrote a Washington Post op-ed about the, the classified documents case, mm -hmm. making the point as an intelligent professional that keeping our national secrets matters. What is What are the stakes when the president himself dismisses the, the importance of that? You hear me not even being able to, to respond. It is an unbelievable situation to me when the president who knows everything, including what it took to get advantage. And remember, advantage is all about keeping Americans safe for democracy, right? America and Americans. It takes a lot. And the women and men who serve believe so much in the outcome they're pursuing that they will sacrifice their ability to talk openly to the press, and they will sacrifice their lives in order to be able to deliver that. If that breaks, right, if that broke breaks, the system. two things happen. People die. We stop getting as much advantage and security is actually eroded or the women and men who are prosecuting decide that their sacrifices don't matter i just I, I, the president should know and the president should protect what about all the people that are killed as a result of breaching security this gracious do that through a, through a responsible process but until that day this system has benefit. This chick is super boring. And it has benefit in what does it mean you lose obvious and not predictable. Side of who you are. What the fuck does that mean? Well, thank you so much, Sue. Really appreciate it. Doesn't fucking tell us anything.
really tell us anything. Exclamation point. And had a security clearance. Clearance. I worked, It just infuriates me that oh. danger that Mr. Trump poses. Hands out our defense secrets like candy. Candy. That there was a spike.
No, Trista. To disqualify him immediately. He's fucking stopping. Disqualify him. Joseph for Perez, Trump for prison. I said, this doesn't really tell, tell us anything, which is, I guess, to be expected from an intel officer, lol. I worked for the State Department while I was applying to become a Foreign Service officer and had security clearance. She failed to mention the lives at stake of the people who work in intelligence and in diplomacy. When the president is handing out defense secrets like candy, please look into this as a follow-up story idea. There was a spike in deaths in the intelligence community shortly after Trump took all these defense secrets home with him. This person is the biggest traitor and terrorist we've ever known. Should be our national priority number one to disqualify him. Christopher Prez, Trump for president. Prison. She rarely speaks publicly, but whenever she does, I listen. I sincerely hope our leaders do too. Oh yeah, what, do, what does that mean? When she was asked... You didn't ask her to Said maybe that's a little bit harsh. What kind of weird answer is that? Kind of fucking big. Big.
I said, this doesn't really tell us anything, which is, I guess, to be expected from an intel officer, LOL. I worked for the State Department while I was planning to become a Foreign Service officer and had security clearance. She failed to mention the lives at stake of the people who work in intelligence and in diplomacy. When the president is handing out defense secrets like candy, please look into the this as a follow-up story idea. There was a spike in deaths in the intelligence community shortly after Trump took all these defense secrets home with him. This person is the biggest traitor and terrorist we have ever known. Should be our national priority number one to disqualify him. Christopher Perez, Trump for prison. Oh yeah, what does that mean really when she was asked the greatest threat to security that we forget who we are? What kind of vague answer is that? You didn't even ask her to clarify. Okay. Let's see what else is on Midas Touch that I haven't seen yet. Republicans, fatal mistake just dims their future. Well... Let's hope so. I wanted to do air stalls because I've got some insecurities. I wanted to take care of this belly fat. Nothing would get the weight off. I belly felt like fat? this tire was haunting me. And all I know is I'm the only one, at least the only celebrity, that's talked about their insecurity of their hands. They look like old lady hands. They didn't match what I felt like my age was, at least. So I decided to do something about it, and I heard about Aerosol. I loved what they said about it, which is like quick recovery, local anesthesia, no pain, basically. So I had the fat transferred from my belly to my hands. I gotta tell what? you, the difference is night and day. My belly fat is gone, I have a hourglass figure, and I've got smooth hands. I could not be happier. Welcome to On Demand with FP Wellman. I am FP Wellman, Fred Wellman, your host. This week's show comes as we celebrate yet another indictment. I believe number four we're on now. It's hard to keep track. I mean, by the time we publish the show, there might be four or five more indictments. Uh, this time, Don brought along about 18 of his friends for a criminal conspiracy. Uh, we'll talk about what that means and what the polls mean later in the show. But I really want to get to our guest. You know, if you follow our show or watch my hot takes on Midas Touch, you know I've been saying that we are winning. But, 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 you also have to do the hard work to go all the way and defeat this real anti-democratic movement we face. This week, I'm thrilled to have a young man, a soldier in this fight, who has waited in the fight and keeps finding new ways to make the, take the movement forward. Uh, so we're going to talk about Gen Z, activism, gun control, and you know, the political landscape we face today. So I'm not going to waste any time. Let's get right to it. Again, I am Fred Wellman. Welcome to On Democracy, your host, the most here on the Minus Touch Network and everywhere you get your podcast. Hope you'll follow us there. Man, I am so thrilled to have David Hoggrove join us today. He's a leader in the fight and gun violence, a Parkland survivor, co-founder of March for Our Lives, and organizers helped lead one of the largest youth movements in our country. Now, he's co-founder of Leaders We Deserve, a new mission aiming to elect more members of Gen Z. David, welcome to the show. It's so good to finally have you in person. 
Thanks for having me, Fred. I'm, I'm truly honored. I think we've been harassing each other for, on Twitter for a while since, since not long after Parkland. It's funny, I, I tell the story often. Uh, you know, after you guys, I think you guys wanted Ellen Jenner's and some of those right-wing nut jobs who you just love you. <laughs> you know, we're, we're harassing you. And I, I pointed out my own experience with loss, and uh, it got crazy for a minute there. And, uh, and here we are, all these years later, five years later. So it's just been it's been a joy watching you and your, and, and the work you put in. I mean, you are a lightning rod, these guys. And and look, I'm not going to blow smoke up you, but I do. It, it's you handled it really well. And and I, I, I thank you. I've been in that battle a few times myself as an old Lincoln Project guy, and. Uh, it ain't easy, and it takes a chunk of you, so it's, uh, it's impressive that you've managed to stay in the fight. So you got a new fight. It's a new pack launched. That's never easy. I've launched a couple of packs. I've ran a couple of packs. Everybody thinks it's going to be super easy. Like, hey, I'm famous. How hard can it be? Um, you know, so you got some great press. You built a powerful set of support. We'll start. How, how is it going? Tell me more about leaders we deserve. It's gone really great. We've had a phenomenal launch week. We've raised well over $100,000, nice. and I think... We're on track to raise several hundred thousand more before the end of the quarter. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that's most exciting about that to me is how much of it is just grassroots supporters from around the country. Uh, last I checked, we have donors from pretty much every state. Um, and it's super exciting. We have a lot of monthly supporters as well that are uh, investing in us in the long term that really help make the difference because we need to get to work before election season. Um, and what, for those of you that don't know, Leaders We Deserve is an organization that I started uh, with Kevin Lanoff, Maxwell Frost's campaign manager. Maxwell is a first Gen Z member of Congress. Yeah. And the way that this kind of came about uh, is when I was working in March for Our Lives, uh, Maxwell became our first national organizing director. So he was working on the ground with the organization. And you know, one of his first events uh, that he was organizing with March for Our Lives was after uh, we won the Virginia State Legislature uh, and the governor's race. Um, we had, you know, all three of uh, the state, House, and Senate, and the governor, and it enabled us to pass gun laws and the, the gun violence prevention groups on the ground in Virginia that had been working on it for decades, people like Lori Haas and many others after Virginia Tech um, had been working on this. And, you know, we had a bunch of students as March for Our Lives that wanted to go up to Virginia uh, to or go uh, to the state capital in Virginia to demand change. Uh, as they were doing that, though, a lot of our students, mind you, most of whom were, were high schoolers or right. just uh, starting college, um, actually started getting a lot of death threats from armed counter protesters um, that were threatening to uh, kill them uh, if they showed up to practice their First Amendment rights of you know lobbying government um, and asking. You know, making making their voice heard, uh, and of course, a lot of our students were not able to show up originally um, because their parents weren't going to be okay with them being threat having somebody like a 70, 17 or sixteen year old threatened to be killed by some armed group. Um, and obviously, that's understandable. But what I said to Maxwell when he was talking about what was going down as it was his first uh, organizing event with March for Lives was, was I said, you know. I know that this is really challenging, but I think what we should do is we should try to get a bunch of college students from around Virginia uh, and like DC to show up in place of these students to go and lobby, knowing that you know they aren't as at risk as a younger person. Yeah. And what we can do is instead of showing up that day, what if we went in and slept in one of the state legislators that I knew? What if we slept on? What if you all slept on their floor? The night before, got up that morning and lobbied before the Alex Joneses of the world and others showed up, and they're like, "You're crazy!" You know, they 
you're like, that, that's cool, but that's never going to happen. And I said, okay. So we called up one of the state legislators um, who is, you know, personally affected by gun violence. And um, he actually, it actually ended up working. And I wasn't there for it because I was, like, I had been working so hard over the past two years at that point that I had to take a break mentally. Yeah. Um, because I had been just going at it constantly my gap year. But this was when Maxwell really stepped up into that leadership role. And from that, you know, they, they were by no means the only group there. But those young people, I, I think, showing up despite these tens of thousands of armed counter-protesters showing up outside, showing up and lobbying these state legislators and saying, you need to do this, is part of what enabled us to pass those gun laws for the, you know, some of the most uh, gun laws in uh, a decade or more in yeah. Virginia. You know, laws that will save lives not just because those young people showed up, but I think in part of it, right, in the first place, because of course I want to give credit to the people that have been doing the work long before Parkland happened, yeah. you know, uh, doing the work in the Virginia State Legislature after Virginia Tech um, to help end that. But that's when I got to know Maxwell. A couple of years later, Maxwell calls me up and he says, you know, I'm really interested in running for Congress. Uh, and I said, well, you know you're 24, right? And you can't run. <laughs> and he's like, actually, I'll be 25 by the time I'm elected. And I was like, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you figured that out. Um, and I said, you know, I don't support most people who run for office because I don't trust politicians, but I don't see you as a politician. I see you as a friend. Yeah. Um, and I think Maxwell also need that support because he's not, you know, um, super well politically connected. Yeah. Uh, and he's not from a super wealthy family by any means. He's, a, he's an adopted young person um, who's been fighting, leading the fight against gun violence since he was 15 years old after Sandy Hook. Um, when he went to that first national vigil uh, for gun violence prevention when he was 15. Um, and he asked his parents for that, I think it was for Christmas or something, to be able to go up to D.C. for that. I helped Maxwell on his race. Every morning I'd be out, I was on his kitchen cabinet, yeah. and every uh, Thursday morning at 9 a.m., I'd be in my dining hall on a Zoom call with my mask on during COVID, um, talking with his team. And I remember when we started out, they were like, yeah, we have $5,000 in our bank account. There are probably going to be 10 other people in the race. And there ended up being two former members of Congress, the current, the then current congresswoman's pastor, and a really well-connected state legislator. And I said, I don't care. We're just going to keep going, right? Yeah. So I ended up raising actual three hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars in his first two quarters from people around the country that, you know, um, supported him. I shouted him out a lot on social media, yeah. and from that, he, you know, ended up winning despite being so young. Uh, he defeated two former members of Congress. Um, and one to become the first Gen Z elected person, the first member of March for Our Lives elected to Congress. After that, I know this is a little long origin story, Chris. No, no, no. Good story. I think that Maxwell's done yeoman's work in Congress. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's one thing to get elected, uh, but because of your active, the story you just told of activist background, uh, that's why it's also effective, right? It's, it's more than just one thing to get there. Look, let's be honest, there's a whole, there's 435 members of Congress, there's a whole lot of people up there just kind of wallpaper, right? I mean, like, on both sides, there's people who, yeah. like you say, you don't trust them, they go up there, they, their job is to kind of disappear, raise money for two years, get reelected every year, and Maxwell has gone a totally different direction, and that is the story you just told of being an activist at 15 and taking that to Congress, and we really need that. So, so you go on from there, you get him in office and start sparking an idea, I imagine, huh? Yeah, so I, I called up Kevin Law, the Maxwell's campaign manager, after his election. I said, you know, what we did with Maxwell is really special. I, in the same cycle, I actually raised Val Demings $850,000 as yep. well uh, for her race yep. from people around the country to help defeat NRA Puppet, to try to defeat NRA Puppet Marco Rubio. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't succeed, but we did elect Maxwell. 
Um, and I think that the important precedent that we set there is, you know, I was 22 years old when I did that. Yeah. And the fact that a 22 year old could raise almost a million dollars because an opponent took three million dollars from the NRA says a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's still really important and significant. Um, but I talked to the Maxwell's campaign manager after and I said, it'd be re really great if we could do this. So I started talking to him in like January and I was like, first I need to graduate college. We just went forward and we talked to hundreds of people about this before we, you know, launched it to get their advice and how to do it. And now we uh, just launched this week after months of work, thousands of hours of work, honestly, so many conversations. Um, we launched the Leaders We Deserve, uh, which is a package super pack focused on electing young people to state legislatures. That's 80% of our work is state legislatures. And what we do is uh, we're focused on building the bench of the future. In states that have not flipped yet and are not going to flip in the immediate term, like Florida, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, um, and others, uh, like North Carolina, where we see this as kind of investing with, by investing in young people, we're kind of investing with time in the market by getting started now. Yeah. Uh, so we work to elect, 80% of our work is electing people in open blue primaries in lean red states, people that went under the age of 30. Once we get through those primaries, we then go and work on more competitive general elections because you know sometimes you know it might it might it might not be great to have somebody that's representing a district of people that were the median age is you know 65 if it's in Florida for example and this person's uh, you know 21 or 22 years old. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do that, and that's how we help change the power. We hope it will help inspire more young people to turn out and vote up and down the ballot by seeing people who understand the anxiety of what it's like to go through a school shooting, like Justin Jones. Right, see them in their state legislatures, like Maxwell Cross in Congress. Right, to know that they are getting represented, and you know, uh, so we do that, and we'll help elect 50 to 30 uh, of those people to state legislatures in, in red states, and then we'll do one or two members of Congress. And the reason for that is because the worst bills in the country are not coming from Congress, frankly. They are coming from our state legislatures. There are things like "Don't Say Gay." There are things like "Permitless Carry." That is the opposite of what responsible gun ownership looks like. Right. Uh, they are things like, um, you know, standard ground locks, you know, that are trade that are not what's helping keep our country safer and are actually endangering a lot of people as a result because of the recklessness that they enable, which is the opposite again of responsible gun ownership. And I say that as somebody who shoots guns competitively and was on the shooting club at my college. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if we can help give those young people a voice in their state legislatures, if we can show them that there are people that understand them and hear them, it can help turn out young people to vote, it can inspire them to run from, for office in their state legislatures where they really can make a difference because there isn't a filibuster to deal with there. And importantly, we can start to pass progressive policies in a lot of these states eventually to, to see what we can get through the courts now. So when my generation outlives the Supreme Court, we can say, actually, this is why this is constitutional. Yeah. And that's why I'm really vocal about this project. If we have the most important asset, Young people in our country have the two most important assets that you can have in, in politics uh, that cannot be bought, which is the audacity to hope and know that our political system is broken, but it is not unfixable, and time, and the fact that we are going to outlive a lot of the people who are against us right now. The question is, what are we going to do about that legacy? And that's what leaders we deserve is here to do. So. I like it. And I think it's a, it's a noble mission. We talk a lot. Uh, I had David Pepper on the show the other day, of course. He's a, he's a colleague. He's great. He's terrific. Um, I actually worked uh, for Guide Democrats, which is the national version of Blue Ohio and Blue Missouri, which is focused on electing Democrats uh, in those, those forgotten places, the hard red states where they're, they're you know, I, I think we talked about quite a bit for Guide Democrats. If 23 Republicans ran unopposed last cycle, 
which is the same as Blue Paul Gosar, uh, Levy Lesko in Arizona. Another 126 Republicans didn't even have candidates, uh, opponents that could raise $200,000. Um, and so you, you talk about the numbers you were raised for the match, I think about that. The average raise for 126 races was just uh, $79,000. And that's, you know, you can't put the fight. So it's a really, I, I love seeing a new partner join the fight at this important level, at the state legislature level and, and, the, uh, and, the, and Congress too. And, and, and so what does that look like? I mean, what are the kind of things you're going to do, uh, you know, vetting candidates, looking for recruiting? I mean, you've got, I've seen your list, you know, recruitment, day-to-day support. You know, as, as you envision this, you got a small team, um, and it, it's, it's just starting out, so I'm not going to hold you to anything. I can. <laughs> but what's your ambition as far as how you'll help some of these young men and women run for office? Yeah, well, I think part of what we're trying to do is, uh, one, there are a lot of people who come to us that have not publicly announced yet that they're going to run, right, have said that they're interested in running. Right. So, you know, we, we want to be as strategic with our resources as we can and go after the lowest hanging fruit. You know, there are young people that are really passionate and committed to creating change and uh, represent the values of our generation uh, that are running for state legislature in places like Texas and Florida and others. We're, we're going to work to support those young people because we don't, we, we want to be as strategic as we can uh, and not make things harder on ourselves than they need to be. Yeah. Part of what we're also going to be doing, too, is we work, we work very closely with groups like Run for Something and Emily's List, yeah. um, who we talk pretty extensively with that do amazing work. And quite honestly, Brad, have been like the best partners one could ever ask for Like in this work. They've been so amazing in terms of the advice that they've given us um, and uh, the resources that they've offered to us to you know, just help us become the best organization that we can be. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what they do is, you know, the candidate uh, training side of things. So luckily, we don't need to, like, reinvent the wheel, right? I think right. what we can do is work with those groups to say, you know, we have these amazing candidates that are going to help. What we work on specifically, though, is for those candidates that have been trained or have been elected office before and know how to run, uh, is helping give them the right advice that they need early on to get started. You know, like saying, you know, how do we strategic about which endorsements you take or which ones, you know, you don't, and understanding, like, how to do that because a lot of these races it can uh every district is different and for these other people it's like drinking from a fire hose when they're running yeah uh, we'll also help on getting them the right staffing to make sure that they have like good campaign managers good uh staff because a lot of these state legislative races are not like a congressional where there's a ton of people but you know with the with the funding support that we want to come in with like we really want to plug them in and need support with them and part of what that looks like is obviously like as a pack we'll be helping support these candidates financially also have a super PAC as well that helps to spend like on the independent expenditure side um, too in, in, in different ways uh, and coming in you know later on in those campaigns to support them as they start to get closer to the finish line yep. um, and with that too just plugging them giving them a bigger platform I think that's part of what I'm trying to do as well uh, with my you know following on Twitter and, and everything to try to uplift these candidates so that People know it's, you know, the gun violence prevention movement is much bigger than just Maxwell Ross, David Hogg, Justin Jones, um, Emma Gonzalez, and others. It's, there's thousands, there are hundreds of these of people, young people around the country that are the movement, right? And giving them a bigger platform, because I think, historically, frankly, I think liberals have been very emotional investors in change. I think we wait for an Obama-like figure uh, to be very charismatic and come along and save us. Um, and he, of course, was amazing, but the reality is one person can only do so much. And the real way that change is made in the long term, and I know this from studying the history of the Republican Party, is investing every year for decades on end at every level of government and continuously getting better. It's like investing. You know, if, if 
liberals were investing and trying, and conservatives were investing in the market, liberals would be emotional investors that are trying to time the market every two years with whatever they think the, the sexiest and newest thing is, whereas conservatives have played the S&P 500 change for 50 years now. And we're now seeing the results of that. And that's kind of what we're trying to reverse engineer here is to invest in the next generation with time in the market. And the, the important thing, too, that we need for that, Fred, is like we got to get started early, way before election season, to recruit, you know, help find these candidates, yeah. call them up and ask them to run if they are already. Right. Um, but also to support their campaigns early on. You know, the reason why Emily's List is called Emily's List is because it's an acronym. It means early money is like yeast. Because it's it helps these campaigns grow so much quicker, and I think that was really critical for Maxwell's campaign that I didn't really realize about these races before uh, I worked on on his race was how critical early money is in these. Because if you get a lot of money early on, you know, there are, there are 435 congressional races around the country. There are thousands of state legislature races around the country, even more municipal and local elections around the country. Organizations cannot hold each one of those races and say, you know, how much is this candidate, is this candidate like by this person or whatever. They, what they look at is how much they've raised. And for young people, a major obstacle that they have, frankly, is not having the funding network that they need to be able to succeed. But I think that's really important. And it's not to say that you should just elect somebody because they're young. It's because they are first qualified and have the experience that we need represented in office in the first place. Right. And the fact that they are young is really helpful in that if we look like the president, like President Biden, was elected when he was first 29 years old. The reason why he's become so effective is because he's been around forever yeah. and he knows everyone. He knows how to make things happen. I love that. I'm going to pause you right there. there. I, want, I want to pause you real quick with some sponsors in because I want to pick that thread right back up. <laughs> so just grab, grab a moment to get some of our sponsors, have a couple of things, and we'll come on right back to that point. Trees are a renewable resource, but you know, not an unlimited resource. I mean, honestly, trees don't actually grow on trees, right? So everyday cubbies are clear. It doesn't make any sense. What'd you find? All of these books are under five bucks at thriftbooks.com. Real paper is available in easy, hassle-free after drinking. So here, started with 29. Uh, and, and the reason he understands Washington, understands politics, is because of a lifetime of experience and, and, and real experience, uh, like you guys. And so, you know, we had a, a lady on the show the other day, a wonderful elected official um, named Crystal uh, White, who is a minority house leader here in, in uh, Missouri. She got into office in her early 30s, and in only her second year in office, decided to be run for minority floor leader of because there are term limits here in Missouri. So here she is, a, essentially a kid, is running the party and has done a brilliant job. And now she's running for governor, not yet 40. So I think you're, you're dead on, and you're, and you're right. But I guess the question would become, so you know, you've got an activist generation that you're, you're tapping into. You've got young people who are tapping into that. You know. Is that what's driving you to find these candidates? Is that what's driving them into office at this point? I mean, you're at, your group, your generation is super activist. Um, what drives all that, you think? Well, I, I think 